Bibles to Genesis chapter 35. Um, we are, uh, just as kind of a preview of things to come, we are going to enroll some new members this morning. We'll do that at the end of the gathering today uh, before um, we uh, head out. So, uh, But right now, um, let's, uh, let's take a look at Genesis chapter 35. If you've got the Pew Bible in front of you, we're going to be on page 30. And uh, there's just a lot going on in this chapter, a lot of details I'm not going to cover all of them. If there's anything that you want to talk about, you can jump onto slido.com and ask a question uh, in the Q&R, and we'll take a look at that at the end. All right, let me pray for us. Lord God, we, um, we're very busy people. There's, there's just so much going on in our worlds, just uh, as, as, as a community, as a nation, but as families, as individuals. Um, I find it so easy to just focus on the thing that's directly in front of me. Um, your word is a reminder to us that we would be wise to take a longer view on our lives, that it is... Um, a reality that we are people that will um, speak into the generations to come, that our lives will leave an impression on others, uh, and that uh, today is a good day to be thinking about that. So I just pray that as we open up your word and take a look at the end of Jacob's story, that we would be uh, encouraged in our story, the story that you are crafting for us, uh, and that we would take heed uh, to the things that we think and do, uh, the way we live, uh, and moving forward. I just pray that you would uh, bless the teaching of your word, help me to communicate well and, and, and good and true things. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the musical Hamilton, um, at the very, near the end, um, there's, there's a pretty famous duel between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. And uh, Hamilton is shot, and he is dying. And in Lin-Manuel Miranda's version of events, Alexander Hamilton says, legacy, what is a legacy? It's planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. I wrote some notes at the beginning of a song, someone will sing for me. At this moment in the musical, knowing that he is taking his last breaths, he begins to think about his future. I think that's probably a little late. <laughs> but for, unfortunately, legacy is not really something we tend to think about typically until we are at the end of our lives. I have more conversations about what's what people are going to leave behind with older people than I do with younger people. I turned 40 last year. To some of you, that's really old. To others of you, that's barely an adult. That's fine. But I'm starting to think about my future a little more than I used to. What am I creating that will outlast me? What am I passing on to my kids? What am I investing in that I'm never actually going to see the fruit of, but matters. 
This last chapter, this chapter in, in Genesis 35 is the, is the end of Jacob's story. It's, it's the last chapter where he's the main character. Moving forward, he's just going to play a side role. And Moses is wrapping up these last details of his life in preparation for the next section, the story of Joseph, which we'll get to um, actually this fall. And so there's a lot of details that, that Moses has thrown out here because they're going to be relevant later on. But this morning, what I want to do is, is take a look at, at five questions that I think this text prompts for us to ask of parents, especially fathers, and I don't mean to pick on fathers, but Jacob is a father, so that's what I'm going with. Questions about the legacy that we are leaving. And if you're not a father this morning, that, that's okay. Don't tune out. Maybe you will be a father someday, or, or maybe you know a father, or, or maybe you have a father. Um, or maybe you can just listen to the voice of the Spirit as he speaks to your own situation. But Jacob is a father. He's a father of a large family. He's a, he's a father of a nation. And so we're going to take a look at things that he is doing with regard to his legacy. So the first question I want to ask uh, that we see in this text is the question, do I lead my family in worshiping God? Do I lead my family in worshiping God? Look at verse 1. God said to Jacob, get up, go to Bethel and settle there, build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his family and all who are with him, get rid of the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves and change your clothes. We must get up and go to Bethel. I will build an altar there to the God who answered me in the day of my distress. He has been with me everywhere I have gone. Then they gave Jacob all their foreign gods and their earrings, and Jacob hid them under the oak near Shechem. So this moment in 35 is the moment when Jacob finally fulfills his promise to God from all the way back in 28. Remember, all the way back in chapter 28, he shows up at this place called Luz, which he renames Bethel, and he, has, he sleeps there, and he has a vision of a stairway leading up to heaven, and he sees angels going up and down the stairs, and God is there, and God promises to take care of him and protect him and to bring him back to the land. And God calls in that promise here. He says, I want you to go back to Bethel and fulfill your promise to do what you said you would do. And so Jacob turns to his family. He's got all these sons. Um, he's got these wives. He's got multiple servants and a whole entourage that are unnamed. And he calls his family to worship Yahweh. He says, put away all of the other gods that you have. And there's, there's all of these idols in the camp. We, we read a couple chapters ago that Rachel stole some from her dad when they left. He probably has servants that he's brought into his entourage that have brought their own religious traditions into his house. And Jacob, at this point in his life, is willing to confess that his allegiance is only to Yahweh, and he calls his family to have the same allegiance. This begins in his life with repentance. Jacob hasn't always been faithful to God. Right? When he even made this promise, he kind of hedged his bets. Like, you know, if you do these things for me, God, maybe I will do these things for you and we'll wait and see how this pans out. But in episode after episode after episode, God has been faithful to Jacob. And so Jacob is going to be faithful to God. And in calling his family 
to follow Yahweh, that call begins with him. He is going to give his ultimate allegiance to Yahweh and call his family to do the same. And this is an important reminder, especially for us dads, that your family's faith is going to be built on your faith. You have the responsibility to lead your family in the pursuit of Christ. And maybe you're here this morning and you, you say, like, I, you're not doing that. Maybe you, you recognize that that's not something that's true about the dynamics of your home. And that starts, that starts with the determination that you are going to follow Christ yourself. And I know a lot of times in the church, there's just kind of a, a religious trope that like families come to church and, and dads show up because like, well, my wife wanted me to, or we do it for the kids or whatever. And, and your faith re- relationship with God is just kind of mediocre. And if that's where you are today, I'm glad that you're here but you don't have to stay there. That's a decision that you can make today and every day moving forward to begin to trust Christ with who you are and where you're going and to lead your family in that repentance. And what that repentance looks like is, in in Jacob's case, it looks like action, right? There's, There's all of these false gods in their home and they're going to get rid of them. They're going to do the thing that shows their allegiance to Yahweh. In Acts 26, Paul says, I preach to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. So repentance is something that happens internally. It's something that, that, that starts with changing your mind. You're going this direction, pursuing your own desires and hopes and dreams, and God gets a hold of your heart and you turn around, you do a 180 and you start going the other direction. That repentance starts with the decision to turn, but it doesn't stop there. It continues with your actions, with the way you live your life. And Jacob models the repentance of his heart. That's been a slow process. That's been something that's been happening in his heart for a number of years by saying, we're going to get rid of the gods in our house. We're going to follow Yahweh alone. And so the question for, for all of us, dads especially, but, but moms, but everybody else as well, like, what if you haven't been walking with Christ well up until now? What if this morning you recognize, like, yeah, I'm kind of a mixed bag like Jacob? We'll start today. Today is the day that you can say, I am going to follow Christ. I'm going to commit myself to following Jesus. The beating Anabwale says about fathers, to lead well is hard To lead your family consistently is difficult. One of the most difficult things I think men will have to do in finishing well is to look up, to see their failure and their inconsistency, and not let their failure and their inconsistency make them give up on the leadership role that God has called them to. And it will be very difficult to graciously enter back into the family and with people who have now years of reasons to doubt your leadership and lead them afresh. Start anew, gather them, and lead them in the path of righteousness say to them, follow me as I follow Christ. And for some of you guys, you've got really young children. And so now is the time to set up really good habits in your home of following Christ together as a family. But, but others of us have older children and, and maybe we've been derelict in this for a long time. And just the idea that like, oh man, I haven't been leading well. 
I can't start now. You think maybe Jacob felt that? He's been kind of screwing up for 20 or so years. What do you think he's feeling as he, he, he calls his family to give up their false gods? Donald Whitney in his book, Family Worship, says, when a man awakens to his spiritual responsibilities in the home, but because he has failed to lead family worship for so long, he feels embarrassed to begin now. And I wonder if, if maybe sometimes we feel that, that we're, we're, we recognize that God's call on our lives is to lead our families in the worship of Christ, but we've not done well so far. Jacob's example to us shows that even if his record is, has been mixed for all of these years, it is never too late to start. And so the question for us is maybe what are the idols in our homes that we need to bury, that we need to call out and get rid of? And maybe, maybe you can see them clearly. Maybe, maybe they come to mind. Maybe there's just things that are about the fabric of your home that are just in the way of your relationship with God. Maybe you're not sure. This is a really good discussion to have with your wife and your kids. My family is consistently insightful when I ask them spiritual questions. What possessions, what attitudes, what activities or habits are getting in the way of pursuing Christ as a family? Can you be an example to your family of getting rid of them and calling them to do the same? Jacob calls his family to purity before God. He says, purify yourselves and change your clothes. And this isn't because like God is squeamish. Sometimes we get this impression that like, like sin makes God sick to the stomach and it's icky and so he just can't handle us. No, he is the all-powerful, all-consuming fire creator of the universe. God is fine. But he knows that our purity is what increases our ability to enjoy him. When we are weighed down with sin, we don't have the capacity to be near God. We can't stand in his presence, not because he can't handle us, but because we can't handle him because of our sin. In Isaiah 6, we read Isaiah's conversion, and, and he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies." Isaiah's response to the holiness of God is his own revulsion. He can't bear it because of his sin. We read similarly in, in Psalm 24, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false, who has not sworn deceitfully. Our ability to have a close relationship with God is in many ways dependent on our own holiness. In community group, if you're in a community group, you, we've been going through this study called Between Two Trees, and, and the, the video talks about light and darkness and how when you're asleep in your bed, 
and somebody comes into the room and flips the lights on, you don't just go like, yay, the lights. No, you go, ah, shut the lights off. Because you, you can't stand the light. And this is what our sin does to us. Like we get so accustomed to the darkness of sin that when the light shows up, we can't stand it. And so Jacob says, hey, we, we need to accustom ourselves to the light. We need to approach God. We need to trust in Yahweh. We need to purify our lives. And I think the question for us is, what are the things that exist in your home, in your family, in your rhythm of life that prevent your growth in Christ? What are the things that allow you to sit in the darkness and be unaccustomed to the light? Get rid of them and lead your family in doing the same. The second question I think this text uh, prompts is that, is, is do I recognize God's care for my family? Look at verse five. When they set out, a terror from God came over the cities around them and they did not pursue Jacob's sons. So Jacob and all who were with him came to Luz, that is Bethel in the land of Canaan. And Jacob built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because it was there that God had revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. If you remember in the last chapter, Jacob's sons had committed this terrible crime against the Hivites in Shechem. They had murdered all the men of that country and enslaved all the women and children. And Jacob, at the end of the chapter, is afraid that word will get out around the country and the other peoples of the land will come after them in vengeance for what they'd done. But this does not happen. And Moses tells us why. Because of God's supernatural intervention. It would be easy to just assume, hey, all these people are going to come after us. And then when they don't, just go like, wow, that was good luck, wasn't it? And Moses said, no, it wasn't. It was because God himself stepped in to protect Jacob's family. I think a really good question for me is, is who is really in charge of my family's safety? Who is in charge of their prosperity? It's easy to think that it's me. But what does that do to me? Again, this, is, this can be anyone's battle, but I think it, it flares up a lot in men, especially if you're a primary breadwinner in your family. Things are going well. It leads to pride. Look at how great I'm doing. Look at how much money I make. Look at how secure we are. Look at this nice stuff that I can get for my kids. When things are not going well, then it's the opposite. It's, it's fear and shame. It's a burden. It feels like it's my job to take care of my family. And in one sense, that's true. In 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul says, in fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. It's a heavy word. We've been given responsibilities and we're called to be faithful to them. Fathers, that means laying your life down for your family. In Ephesians 5, this is directed to husbands about wives, but I think it applies more broadly to families. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. We are called as fathers to set aside our desires, our preferences for the good of those in our family. 
But in spite of all that, at the end of the day, who is taking care of your family? God is. Psalm 121, 4 and 5 says, Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. The Lord protects you. The Lord is a shelter right by your side. When you are worried, when you are consumed with anxiety, when things aren't going well, when you're stressing out about whatever it is you're stressing out about, God is the one that never sleeps. God is the one that is ultimately caring for your needs. And this is something that that really needs to move from your head to your heart. If you've been a a Christian for a while or even just a church person, like you know the right answer to spiritual questions, like who's in charge, Who's, who's taking care, oh, God is. It's easy to say those things, but it's harder to believe them. I don't let the truth sink into my heart. I was having a discussion with um, my spiritual director this week, and, and, and I've, I, was, I was feeling some thoughts of anxiety around a, a, a video project that I was doing, and, and we were just talking about it, and, and, and he, he said, like, well, why, why are you anxious about that? And I said, well, I just, you know, just, just want to do well, and I want to get it done, and, and he said, well, what if you don't? Are you going to die? I'm like, well, no, but maybe they won't be happy. Like, well, okay, then what? Well, then, then I might have to do it over, okay? Is that the end of the world? No, that's not the end of the world. So why are you anxious? Like, oh, I don't know, I just am. And, and he just kind of said, well, don't be. <laughs> like, it's like, well, easy for you to say. But his point was that, that I knew all the right answers in my mind about how God is ultimately caring for me and ultimately the consequences of these things that I'm wrestling with are really not that big a deal. But I didn't let that soak into my heart and give me the confidence and the peace that God is offering me in the midst of that hard work. I was failing to do that, and that anxiety was springing out of my not really trusting in God. What if there's not enough money? What if expenses go up? What if somebody gets sick or injured? There's like a thousand terrible what-ifs that I can imagine that are always out of my control, but they aren't outside of God's control. And the question for us is, is, do you believe that God wants better things for your family than you do? Can you bridge the gap between your head and your heart and rest in that peace? That no matter what happens, God loves you and your family more than you do. And he will take care of you. The next question, I think this passage prompts is, do I release my children from my own burdens? Do I release my children from my own burdens? Verse 16, they set out from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and her labor was difficult. During her difficult labor, the midwife said to her, don't be afraid, you are, for you have another son. With her last breath, for she was dying, she named him Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. 
And Jacob set up a marker on her grave. It is the marker at Rachel's grave still today. This is a really dark moment for Jacob, right? Rachel is the woman that he loves, the only wife that he ever really wanted. And he loses her to the birth of her second son. Maternal death is a relatively rare thing in the United States today. Um, Almost 300,000 women worldwide died in childbirth in 2020. There were only 800 in the U.S. But through most of human history, the birth of a child is a huge blessing and a major fear. There was a real possibility that you would die giving birth to your child. So imagine the emotional weight of a child whose very life is the cause of the death of their mother. And and not just their mother, but their father's beloved wife. Rachel names this boy Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. She, She goes all in in identifying this son with her death. This boy is the one that caused my death. But Jacob changes his name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. It's as if he's saying in the midst of what must be his terrible grief, Benjamin, I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm glad to have you. You matter to me. He gives Benjamin such a blessing by not needlessly burdening him with the death of his mother. I mean, can you imagine carrying the name son of my sorrow and knowing that you got that name because your mom died to bring you life? Jacob saves him from that and gives him value in his name. How do we burden our children with things that they don't deserve to carry? We played sports at a certain level, so they better play sports at that level. We went to a certain kind of school, pursued a certain career. They better follow in our footsteps, make us proud. Too often, the ways that we push our children to be and believe things about themselves that they shouldn't actually come from our view of ourselves in the eyes of God. And we communicate things clearly to our children that aren't necessarily things that we say out loud. Mark Foreman, in his book, Never Say No, writes, my achieving posture was watered partially by my engineer father who would only nod at my report card of A's and B's, then teasingly ask, why weren't they A pluses? We are a society that keeps score. Performance-based living, even in a culture of grace, is epidemic. Raised to be the best, it's not hard to... It's hard not to view God as cracking the whip. He goes on to write that this subconscious view of God that he was threatening to pass on to his kids in his performance mindset was broken one day when he came to the end of himself and in a moment of despair, crying out to God, heard God say, I enjoy you. I enjoy you. Do you ever think that God would say that to you? 
in the uh, super popular book of Zephaniah. Chapter 3, we read, For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Do you believe that that's how God sees you? Do you recognize that that's his heart of love for you? And and do you see your kids that way? Are you teaching them about a God that says, I enjoy you? Or about a God that has demands that can't be met? Joanna and I have a friend who has some learning disabilities. She suffered a lack of oxygen at birth. And um, as we got to know her, she would talk about her mom and how her mom would frequently say, if those doctors weren't so bad at their jobs, you wouldn't be so screwed up today. See, her mom was wrestling with her own trauma over a tragedy that had happened to her daughter. But in doing so, she was passing it on to her daughter. My my friend internalized that message over years and years. And she talks herself out of trying new things. She thinks she's too stupid to learn. She knows that her life won't... what won't measure up to anything because she's too screwed up to do anything that matters. She goes from destructive relationship to destructive relationship looking for someone to accept her for who she is and not grieve over what she could have been. That's the burden that she was given and it's one that she doesn't deserve. We see here just this act of grace by Jacob, this gift that he gives to Benjamin by changing his name, by releasing him from this burden that he does not have to carry because he is beloved by his father. The next question, it's a little darker. Do I understand the influence I have on my children? Verse 21, Israel set out again and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Edar. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard about it. This is the first time the narrator calls Jacob by his new name. As he fades out of the narrative, he is becoming a patriarch like Abraham. But there's a threat to his family that's just barely touched on here. At first glance, you read these verses, and, and it seems like maybe just Reuben is, is, um, just commits a young man's sexual sin, that lust is working itself out in this weird, incestuous relationship. But it's a lot more than that, though. Reuben is the eldest son, and he is making a power move over his father. 
Jordan, uh, Gordon Wenham says, it was, an authority, it was to, a claim to authority over his father. As firstborn, he was asserting a claim to his father's estate. We saw this back in chapter 9 with Ham, Noah's son. We will read about it in 2 Samuel 16 with Absalom when he attempts to take the throne from his father, King David, and has a sexual relationship with some of David's wives. See, Reuben is trying to usurp his father's authority. He's trying to take the birthright and the family blessing that is meant to come to him as firstborn, but he's taking it out of turn. In other words, he's acting just a little bit like his dad, isn't he? Reuben is the oldest. He was born long before Jacob stopped being a schemer. Reuben has grown up learning about how to get along in the world by watching his father. And he acts very similarly. And it's, it's strange. Jacob doesn't say anything. The text doesn't say why. But we find out later that this act of Reuben results in Reuben being cursed. In Genesis 49, Jacob says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my strength, and the first fruits of my virility, excelling in prominence, excelling in power, turbulent as water. You will not excel because you got into your father's bed and you defiled it. He got into my bed. And so Reuben, the firstborn, loses his place in the family because of his sin. The second and thirdborn, Simeon and Levi, because of their mass murder of the Shechemites, also lose their place in the hierarchy. And the birthright and the blessing go to the fourthborn son, Judah. And eventually the Messiah, the King Jesus, comes through the line of Judah. This is a, this is a pretty deep cut, but... But do anybody remember the, the old drug commercial where the, the son is in his bedroom and the dad comes in and opens up the cigar box and it's, it's full of weed? And he's all like, who taught you how to do this? And he's pushing on him and, and finally the son kind of loses and he goes, it's you, all right? I learned it from watching you. And then the narrator goes, parents who use drugs have children who use drugs. It's super corny. But it's true, isn't it? Our parents, as parents, our children, they watch us. They take note of how we live our lives, the things that we do, the things that, they, that we say. And they model their lives after us, whether we want them to or not. It's interesting to look at Jacob's older and younger children. Reuben, the oldest, commits this terrible act of betrayal against his father. But the whole next section of this book focusing on Joseph, is about a young man who on the whole is incredibly godly. As we go through his story, we're going to find example after example that we would be good to emulate in his honesty, in his sexual purity, in his love for God. And I wonder how much that has to do with Jacob's character growing over time. By the time Joseph is born, is, is Jacob just a little more concerned about his own Walk with God. The frightening reality for all of us as parents is that our character is going to rub off on our kids, good or bad. They are always watching. They are always learning. Even when we think we're doing things in secret that they can't see. 
I was talking, I was talking to Jackson earlier this week about The Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin. And the line in the chorus, I'm, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. A father who grows up too busy to spend time with his son ends up having a son that is too busy to spend time with his father. And the question I have to ask myself, am I good with that? If, if my daughters grow up to be just like me, is that something I'm going to rejoice about or mourn over? The last question I think that this passage has for us this morning is probably the best one for all of us, and it's, do I rest in God's grace? Going back to verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again after he returned from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You will no longer be named Jacob, but your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, indeed, an assembly of nations will come from you, and kings will descend from you. I will give you the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac. I will give you the land of your future descendants. Then God withdrew from him at the place where he had spoken to him. This is the drumbeat of the story of the patriarchs of Israel, right? This is God's grace. God chooses to bless, to protect, to guide. Why? Because he wants to. Because he promises that he will. Does Jacob deserve this? Nope. God is doing something bigger than Jacob. He's bringing about the redemption of the world in Jesus, and he's doing it through Jacob's family. All of the undeserved blessings that he pours on Jacob's family are leading to Jesus. But the reality is all of the undeserved blessings that he's pouring out on your family are flowing out of Jesus. Whether you have young kids or old kids, whether you're a mom or a dad, whether you're single, we all have an opportunity to speak into the lives of those who live after us, to plant seeds in a garden that you won't get to see and write songs that someone else will sing. Each one of us, in whatever role we play in our families, in this church, in this community, have been given the gift by God of creating that future, of, of leaving a legacy. And is it because you're awesome and you deserve such a blessing? No, it's because God is kind because he loves you, because he enjoys you and rejoices over you with joyful songs, like Zephaniah says, because he gave his own life to rescue you from sin and death and has invited you to be a part of his process of remaking the world into something beautiful. Jacob gets the same blessing reiterated to him once again that his grandfather and his father did that he has been called, he has been chosen, he has been given this gift of grace to be a blessing to the world. And as Jesus' people, as his church, we're called to be a blessing to the world too. And if you really begin to believe that, if you, if you take it out from your head, where it's really easy to get it in your head, and you move it into your heart... and begin to live your life out of that reality, 
There will be people who talk about you when you've gone and credit your influence with the good that God has given them in their lives. Let's do some Q&R. There are no questions. Is that true? Well, make it easy. Okay, no questions. Fair enough. We're going to take communion this morning. We talked a few minutes ago about how difficult it would be for your life to be connected to your mother's death. To have a name that constantly reminded you that you were the cause of the death of someone that gave you life. But in a somewhat different way, this is what we do when we celebrate communion together. Because our lives are connected to Jesus' death. What was the cause of Jesus' death? Me. You. We brought Jesus' death. And our new birth comes about because of his death. The the good news is, is that Jesus is God and he can't be kept dead. He cannot be kept by death. He is over he overpowers death and he rises from the grave. And we celebrate this on Easter. But every week, strangely enough, Jesus says, I want you to remember my death. I want you to be marked by my death. I want the life that you live to be connected to my death. And this is what the communion meal does for us as we take the bread and the cup, remembering Jesus' broken body and his shed blood for our sins. We don't ultimately mourn because He's died, but we rejoice that he gave his life for us and then rose from the dead to secure our everlasting life. And so we're going to do what we do every week, and we're going to sing. We're going to take communion. You're welcome to sit or stand, come kneel at the prayer rugs. Just remember the death of Christ on your behalf. Identify with the death of Christ on your behalf. But most importantly, remember that his death and his resurrection are symbols that he loves you deeply, that he cares for you more than you can imagine. And that his life in us empowers us to share that life with others. We're going to um, all stand together and recite the Nicene Creed together, this affirmation of of who we are as Christians, this ancient uh, statement of faith that connects us with the church for centuries. And then once again, if if you were here last week, we we had these strips of paper up front behind the communion. And if if you um, would like to take some 
back to your seat and write on them. You can write thoughts, prayers, scripture verses, um, song lyrics, uh, anything that's meaningful to you. The art team is going to compile them into a tapestry for Good Friday. If you choose to do that, just take them back to your seat and, and, and write on one side of them whatever is meaningful to you and then just set them on the side of the stage before you leave today. So let's, let's stand together and, and recite the creed and then, and then we'll worship and take communion. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.